brainwaves hear the world differently. Tune in to 3CR Community Radio Wednesdays at 5pm for Brainwaves, Melbourne's drive time radio show. Giving voice to people with mental illness. One in five have a mental illness, but five in five can enjoy this great program featuring heartwarming stories, great information and some laughs as well. Find us at 3CR. 855 on your AM dial. Sponsored by Mental Illness Fellowship of Victoria. Hello, welcome to Brainwaves on 3CR. 855 AM, 3CR Digital and 3cr.org.au. This is Amber and Lauren, and we're here today at the Vimiac Conference. It's the Victorian Mental Illness Awareness Council Conference for 2016. Coming up are some of the speakers from today's conference. This is an excerpt from Louisa Dent Pierce's presentation on recovery-orientated practice and the power of storytelling in recovery. What I want to do today is, it's, it's great that I came after the talk that we just heard, for those of you that weren't in the room, we were looking at um, rights of voluntary patients in hospitals and that very grey area that often exists between being voluntary and involuntary and the kind of coercion that goes on. So following on from that, I'm going to present today, uh, I was going to, in, in the abstract I said four case studies, I don't like to call them case studies, let's call them stories, four stories of people. But I've whittled it down to three because I've only got 20 minutes. <laughs> so I was being a bit unrealistic. So we'll go with three. Uh, being a consumer consultant and a, and a peer worker, one of those stories was my own. I'm presenting that as an example of really good recovery-oriented practice, I believe, that's helped me in my recovery journey. The other two stories are people that I know of that I've spent time listening to their stories. and. They are only two people out of many people that I've met whose stories horrify me. So I'm, I feel very thankful that I have this platform today to present those stories on behalf of those people um, and to keep the conversation going around how do we change this? How do we make it so that we don't have these stories when we're having a conference in 10, 20 years? So it sort of centres around this idea of who's the expert and the policies that have been coming in in the last, I, I don't know the history of peer work that well, I've only been on the scene about four years, um, but I know that a lot of work has been done and we've got things like recovery oriented practice frameworks now, we've got the new Mental Health Act, we've got, I work in a private um, psychiatric clinic, we are very big on patient centred care, person centred care. These kinds of principles are now embedded in the policies. First thing I want to do is say thank you. I really want to say thank you to all the people who've worked before me. Some of you may be in this room, um, Mary O'Hagan no doubt is one of them, who've worked to get us to the point where we are today, where I have a job because of something called Standard 2, which is um, the National Safety and Health Accreditation Standards, which say that my hospital have to employ me. Thank you to all the people who've worked so hard to get these policies in and to get us into the workforce. This drawing I drew for one of my psychiatrists that I worked with, um, because he was practicing what I would call recovery-oriented practice. He was allowing me to determine what would work for me and how best to heal. Um, and so I thought this was quite apt because it shows um, 
I guess it reflects a personal journey of self-determination, but it also reflects perhaps the broader things that we can bring to people if we allow recovery-oriented practices to be practiced. So just a really quick crash course in recovery-oriented practice, because I always feel it helps to know what the wording is exactly. Like, we probably all know what that is. Hope, empowerment, self-determination. But here are just some very quick things taken from the recovery-oriented practice framework. I'm just going to read them, just to refresh us. This is what we're aiming for. Lived experience, the heart of the framework. Recovery-oriented approaches focus on the needs of the people who use <coughs> services rather than organisational priorities. Central to all recovery paradigms are hope, self-determination, self-management, empowerment and advocacy. The practices support people to recognise and take responsibility for their own recovery and well-being and to define their goals, wishes and aspirations. The possibility of unresolved trauma is acknowledged in all service settings and the core principles of trauma, safety, choice, collaboration, trustworthiness and empowerment are incorporated into service provision. Therapeutic relationships are key in the management of safety. Robust, mutually respectful and trusting, diverse, active and participatory relationships will contribute to that person's successful management of their own safety. Striking a balance requires an understanding of the illusory, damaging and sometimes discriminatory nature of the goal of reducing harmful risks. So, who's the expert? That's me. That's me about five or six. I had, as some of you already know, um, an experience of childhood trauma. And the three stories I'm going to be presenting today are similar in some ways. All three of us have had childhood trauma. And when I started to seek services, this, this is the person who was the expert. This was my little inner child, the inner vulnerable, rooted part of me that really needed help. So she was the expert. And I'm really lucky that I found services that were able to respond to that and to recognise that. But I'm also, it's not just luck, it's also that I demanded it in a lot of ways. I sometimes use a phrase which I hope my psychiatrist would be offended by, but I say that I trained my psychiatrist to work with me. I expressed what I needed. I found a lot of creative ways to do this, and I'm gonna show you some of those now because I love using art as a learning tool. This was an early depiction of my psychotic, psych what they were calling psychosis, which I can totally understand why because I ticked all of those boxes at the time. Um, I was very, very struggling and not understanding what was going on, very confused, didn't really even know who I was, ego dissolution. But I felt really it was a spiritual crisis that I was going through and I also felt that the illness itself was leading me somewhere that I needed to go. And the wellness that was being told to me is what I should be aiming for early on in that illness was actually something that was unhealthy and that I needed to go on a long, <coughs> dark journey 
often by myself, because when we go into the deepest recesses of our psyche, we are alone. And that was healthier for me. So this required a team of practitioners that could sit with that distress, that could recognize the value of suffering, that sometimes people need to reach down into their deepest recesses to find what is most healing for them. There's another picture that depicts that. I wrote at the time, these are my words from this time, the world is inverted, sick people are reaching for sanity. I'm not sick, I'm waking up. This is a picture which depicted my protest at my psychiatrist who would visit, visit me for two minutes a at a time every day and who felt that he knew me enough to diagnose me and tell me what I needed. So the tip of the iceberg is what the psychiatrist sees. Then what the nurse sees, because she spends 15 minutes a day with me. What the psychologist sees, because they spend an hour a week with me. And what is really going on, or as I put it at that time, what God sees. When I showed this to my psychiatrist, he changed his practice. He started seeing me for 10, 15 minutes. I complained that he didn't say goodbye to me. He would just walk out the door. I said it hurt. He said, all right, I'll say goodbye. <laughs> I know. It's amazing we have to do these things. But he did respond, and we built a collaborative relationship where he tailored his service to my needs. This is another example. Um, my doctor, another doctor at this stage, was getting a bit worried about my need for warmth and empathy. So I used this drawing to illustrate what I needed. That if I had a broken leg, I would just probably need someone to fix it. Thank you very much. If you're not a nice person, that's all right. I can deal with that. But you're dealing with a broken little girl. And she does not need medical provision. She needs care. And I'd say that this, this is a later drawing. This is really what I got from the people around me. Um, so those people represent my support team. And this, to me, is an illustration of trauma-informed care. This is what people who are traumatised need. Safety. To feel cared for. Okay, so that was my story. I'm really, really, really lucky, I know. I, I'm also, I want to say, a private patient. I think that has a lot to do with it. I've got a lot of theories about why I succeeded in getting recovery-oriented practices and the stories I'm about to tell you have not received those things. I probably won't have time to, to go into that today, but, you know, they are there. I, I'm analysing it. Okay, so Susie, Susie's story. Now, Susie, I'm actually going to read this because this is a personal story. I don't want to, I don't want to muck up the wording because she has given me permission to speak it as I've written it. So here we go. Susie's been a consumer of the public health system for the last 20 years and has been medicated most of the time, often on CTOs. She recalls, a lot of her treatment has been traumatic and counterproductive. Most recently, she tried to come off her medication. 
However, she was struggling to cope, living in an abusive home environment. Her family called the CAT team and she was taken to hospital involuntarily. Of her treatment, she reflects. She said she would have agreed to less restrictive options like resuming a low dose of medication and getting some respite, but she was not consulted or listened to. She says the treatment team saw her only through the lens of a previous psychiatric record, remember a 20-year record, and they sided with her family. She was forced to sit in a wheelchair, this is on being taken into the ward, which was a triggering trauma memory for Susie. When she tried to get out of the chair, she was roughly manhandled and has photographs of bruises to prove it. She was forced to stay in hospital until she agreed to comply with a heavy medication <coughs> regime that she did not want. She said she was threatened with the CTO if she did not agree, and thus has complied with the treatment. At no time was Susie a risk of safety of harm to self or others. That may not be the, um, the medical perspective, but um, she, she wasn't, as I know the story, there was no self-harm and she was not violent or expressing any want or desire to hurt anybody else. So here are a few of Susie's words, just to make sure we capture her feelings. I feel they look at my file and they think I'm troubled. I had nine months of my life ruined from drugs. I was in combat. I was fighting for my life. Therefore, I could not behave rationally. Let's look at Daphne's story. Daphne has been diagnosed with having schizophrenia and has been on a CTO for eight years. She's been on a high <coughs> dose regime of drugs, which has created tardive dyskinesia. Her treatment team claims she is frequently psychotic, but Daisy disagrees. She says she is neither delusional nor paranoid. She simply does not believe she has the mental illness she's been labelled with. Instead, Daphne believes she's coping with the effects of a lifetime of trauma. She lives in a family home where she is psychologically abused. To cope, she hears voices, self-harms, and has frequent suicidal thoughts. Daphne complains about her treatment on the CTO, and she says she doesn't agree with her diagnosis. She feels humiliated and angry about the enforced treatment. She doesn't want to be on the medication because her movements have so deteriorated that she cannot walk properly. This affects every aspect of her life. She has been repeatedly coerced to agree to the treatment team's decisions. She feels she cannot stand up to the treatment team because she is scared of the repercussions. She has been lied to and tricked by the treatment team into enforced hospitalizations. She feels she has been misrepresented represented at tribunal hearings and his story has been twisted. She feels she is bullied, this is her word, by the treatment team, even though, her words again, they smile at her. When she gets angry with them and tries to assert herself or express herself, she is labelled as having a behavioural disorder. Most recently, because she's been getting very, very angry, she's now acquired borderline personality disorder. These stories are a tragedy to me. I am very moved by them because they're people I know, the people I've spent time with. And, you know, the contrast between the way I was treated and the way, and these are not isolated, we all know that. 
this is happening all the time. I was reflecting on, I suppose, a lot of the differences. There are a lot of differences. Things like private versus public. Things like supportive caregiver slash advocate, which neither Susie nor Daphne had access to in the way I did. Things like trauma-informed care versus not trauma-informed care. So there's a whole list of them. But one of the key things, and this is, I guess, why I brought these stories to you today, is that I have been able to tell my story. Um, as some of you know, I wrote a book called The Little Girl That Nobody Wanted. That was a, a book I wrote early on in my um, psychosis, um, which you know expressed the trauma that I was going through. And my treatment team listened to it, and they realised, right, this girl needs therapy. You know, medication is not going to be the answer here. This is a this is a Pandora's box of issues from a long, long way back. So. It was the start of my telling my story, and I told my story again and again and again in so many different ways, to therapists, publicly, through my work at Voices Fit, through my work now as a peer worker. Every time I tell my story, I feel not only validated by the people around me, but I feel self-validated. And I think the problem with people who have experienced trauma is that often those stories are invisible. So all the grievances and the hurts that were once done to them have never been aired, have never had a chance for that person to say what their truth is. So I'm very passionate about allowing people to get that story out. And what I'm curious about, why I brought it here to this workshop today, is the question, how do we get people to tell these stories? Now, I know that there's mechanisms for complaints, and we just heard from the Complaints Commissioner, and we've got Urban now, which is great. We've got these sorts of ways. But as we know, there's problems with that because people are afraid. Um, people often think about a complaint in the middle of a crisis because they're so unhappy with what's going on, but they're too, too distressed to bother with the stress of complaining. So, what I'm thinking is that there might be healing value in simply telling the story alone. And I have had a few kind of, I'll, I'll tell you the grand fantasy, first of all, which is that we have, and Mary mentioned it yesterday, we have some kind of a hearing and reconciliation type um, setting that goes on. Uh, a, a citizen's hearing, as they would call it in the United States. Um, that's one idea. That's a big idea, and that requires a lot of resources, a lot of funding, <coughs> a lot of courage, and possibly a lot of legal problems. <laughs> and I'm not a lawyer. But another way I know, and this is my, I guess, area of expertise, is writing and storytelling and making your story heard through your art. And so the simplest thing I can think of is to gather a small task force of people together. And I'm, I'm really hoping for volunteers, actually. I think this would be a, a nice thing for consumers or peers or people with lived experience to, to bandy together, to do together. And that is a task force where we can gather these stories, we can start to collect them. and. You know, we may be able to, we may, may, may be able to publish them. 
um, on, a, on a kind of a website. Um, we have to think about different levels of anonymity and protection. Um, but those stories I just told you there, I have protected the identities and also the services that were involved. But I know from these two people that it was important that I stood up here today and I told those stories on their behalf. This is a part of the healing. This is, um, you know, what one of the reasons Margaret Humphreys, if anyone's familiar with the former British child migrants, that story of abuse that went on when thousands of children were brought over from the UK to Australia and put in institutions, a lot of the healing work that went on there was storytelling healing work. It was narrative therapy. It was allowing people a voice. So, you know, there's, there's other aspects to it as well, I realise, but the power of stories. If you'd like more information on Louisa Dent Pierce and her work, you can visit www.louisadentpierce.com.au. Thanks to listening for Brainwaves on 3CR and our coverage of the 2016 Vimeac Conference. If you'd like more information on Vimeac, please visit vmiac.org.au. If you'd like to hear more of our coverage of the Vimeac Conference, head to brainwaves.org.au. Tune in to Brainwaves next week on Wednesday at 5pm on 3CR.